Hey, welcome to Between the Lines. This is Mark Justice, and today, kiddies, we've got a really fun episode. My longtime friend, bandmate, and fellow writer, Red Fright. Or do you want to go by Fred Wright? Which one? I can always read it. You want to go Red? Okay, I'll do that again. Well, I'll just keep it in. Hey, whatever. People need to know who you are. That's fine. Uh, Yeah. Well, Red, thank you for coming on the show. It is great to see you. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. We've been friends. I think uh, when you Google Fred Wright on Google. So, (laughs) okay. Red Fright definitely uh, makes me uh, more identifiable. That's Red with a W, kids, just in case you're out there listening. Block the names, transposition. (laughs) Right, right. And uh, I've. Red and I met in college. We were on a, I don't know if we were on the same floor, might have been. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and then uh, we started Second a long, floor. our musical journey began when Red was writing a paper for a history class and wanted to put it into song right. and needed a guitarist. And I was just like, I think the first semester of like learning how to play guitar, or something like that. I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's, let's write some songs. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, then then started some bands, and we've had a good time, and we've been friends ever since. You know, yeah, yeah one of a handful of of people from college I I still keep in in contact with, you know, persistently, or consistently anyway. Four so, decades ago, or three decades. I know. Ago, yeah, was it eighty eight, eighty nine, yeah. something like that? Yeah, oh, my God, that's thirty thirty four years. Holy crap! Reagan's president. Wow. It hardly seems real, you know, yeah. that we're uh, <laughs> that we're getting old, you know, right? So, president since then. Yes, yeah. yeah. We keep returning them because no, none of them are any good. <laughs> yeah. Keep trying new ones. Yes. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Fred, Red, excuse me, I'm going to keep on calling you Fred all day, man. I'll try it. Uh-huh. Red, Red uh, has written four novels. The pornographic flabbergasted emus, yes. blog love Omega Glee, yes. frequently asked questions about being dead. There's the title, and Edna's employment agency. So um, now I, uh, I I have a connection to 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 one of these books at loosely. That's the first one because it's about you, the experiences of a band, a right. college band that never quite gets anywhere that sounds about like you know right. what we did so I, so I, I i read some of these stories when i read that book i was laughing because like oh i i kind of remember that I, I remember these situations you know um the garlic bread stories in there and we made garlic bread and got yes yes yeah the glipofly you know yes. <laughs> uh yeah and and i love frequently asked questions about being dead um i think of if the of the four that is my favorite um that one the the tone is hysterical and it it has such a a wonderfully fantastic premise of the woman who's trapped in this liminal stage between life and death and gets to kind of get carried around by these by these agents who kind of kind of get the souls and the bodies and where they need to go Right, and it starts off in this kind of fantastic premise, but then it goes into this crazy existential, like metaphysical, like Kafka esque kind of like rebellion, you know, yeah. um, 
with agents of good or evil or God and devil, however you want to define them. And um, I, th I thought it was just, it was a fantastic book. Good. Congratulations. It was fun to write. Um, well, uh, let's talk, I'll go right from the beginning uh, for you. So let's, you know, who were some of your favorite writers when you first started reading? Who were some of your favorite authors? Oh, uh, favorite writers? Well, uh, Dr. Seuss, starting at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so reading kids' books and stuff like that. And uh, then moving on to comic books. A lot of great comics when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I read a lot of stuff, uh, you know, get books from the library about the, the scouts. Uh, I'd be lucky if I remember their names now. Kit Carson and things like that. And oh, yeah, cool. Three things. Uh, Daniel Boone, stuff like that. Thanks. So reading about uh, American history. And then I also would read a lot of school of the textbooks. I would, especially as I got a little older, I'd read them right away. And then be like, what, what do we read now? And then we're reading that book the whole year. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I'll just read these. So then I got into uh, science fiction and fantasy, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons type stuff, but uh, Lord of the Rings, um, okay. a lot of the Conan books. So a lot of like pulp fiction, like Robert E. Howard. I did a lot of fantasy and science fiction. Um, Philip Jose Farmer. Uh, he was a, a favorite, uh, but, you know, I read all sorts of stuff. And then gradually, probably towards, like, middle high school, I moved more into uh, Stephen King, uh, horror, certainly, as well. Um, Clyde Barker, I think, was starting to come out about then. Um, and then moved over more towards uh, detective novels, um, so hard-boiled stuff, although I don't know if I was reading that necessarily then. I, I liked the Fletch books. They were funny. Um, I like Douglas Adams, so I, I tend to like funny books. It's, it's mm -hmm. fun to laugh. That might be why I try to write comic novels, uh, which if there is any um, writers out there, uh, don't write funny novels because they don't sell. Um, I didn't know that when I started writing them. Right? Uh, apparently people don't like to laugh alone. I guess. Well, Douglas Adams, I guess, would be the, yeah. would be the uh, exception. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Woodhouse, yeah, there's been some who, who made it, but, but in general, it's... Uh, I think yeah. Piers Anthony in the fantasy with his Xanth. Yes, that's right. I read some of him. Yeah, those, yeah, the Xanth. Um, trying to think, there really aren't too many other like outright comical writers like that, especially when you're combining the genres, and that's usually what it is. It's like fantasy right. or science fiction mixed with with humor, you know, right. and um, which is. You know, you've been in my movies. That that's exactly kind of what I'm trying to do. That genre right. combination of, it's a comedy, in the context of a horror film or science fiction. Right. You know, and people and, like to laugh together, which I think comedy movies are, are probably more popular or more common anyway. So that's that's a perfect. Mm -hmm. I think people just reading on the subway. If you're laughing to yourself, you know, people think people get a little worried sometimes. So yeah, it explains why they'd rather read other stuff uh, than so. But I, I enjoy reading them, so I, I still write them. So. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think as a writers, you know, as I was talking with an, another writer, I mean, I don't take a lot of advice from Stephen King, but a few things. I, I like his ideas about writing. I think, I mean, of anyone, he's very prolific. He's, he's successful, oh. so he's got something to say. But the one I take away from him is write for yourself. You know, it doesn't right. matter what the audience cares, thinks, or your editor, or agent, or anybody. Right. If if you're happy with what you've written, that's good enough. Yes. And so I'm I'm guessing that's kind of your your litmus test as well. Are you happy with what you've written? And if so, right. then that's good enough. Right. Exactly. I mean, you want to write something that you want to read. That's 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 what I do. So 
You know, mm-hmm. there are books that were like my books. I just go out and read them. So I wouldn't need to, to write them. So <laughs> right. Writing is fun, but but reading is the main thing. Having fun with something you read. But yeah, you, and you can get into the um, you know being self indulgent. So I mean, it may not be everybody's cup of tea. Or uh, what's right. the thing, um, fan fiction where some I think they call it a Mary Sue, where you make yourself the hero of the story or something like that. So I mean, there are some dangers to to just kind of writing for yourself, but. Mm-hmm. The other side would be writing for someone else entirely, and then that's you see a lot of I think corporate uh, fiction, corporate books are like that. They're Harry Potter is popular. They're going to pump out a lot of stuff like that, and it's usually kind of derivative and not not very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if you're going to be bad um, like me, uh, be original. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that you're bad. I think I think people indie writers we we struggle. I mean the whole industry is struggling, but. I wouldn't say there aren't people who are also indie writers or self-published writers who aren't writing to market. You know, I'm on a couple of different groups on writers groups in Facebook, and I know a lot of writers on Instagram. And uh, some of the success stories are coming out from people who write to market. And they find the, the formula that they are successful in, mm-hmm. and they just crank out these 225-page oh, yeah. books. They crank out like four a year, yeah. and they're making good money. Um, that's something that never appealed to me. Not, not right. the not making money, right. but I have to write something that makes me at least it has some appeal, right. you know, to my own sensibilities, what I want to write. Right. And, um, I don't know, I don't know what it is that I would write if I had to write to market. I maybe, maybe erotica, you know, like right. pornography or something just like 30 shades of gray. I hmm. mean, you know, I don't know. I have no idea what would sell if that even would sell. I have no idea. I think that would sell, particularly now if the e-readers people aren't don't have to hide things when they're reading because you could be reading anything on the e-reader. You could be reading Plato or you could be reading porn. Yeah. Um, so I think Plato that or Playboy or Playboy was part of that. Uh, that just the right timing for for that yeah. kind of mainstream. And and from the snippets that I've both read and heard, especially Gilbert Gottfried's reading, um, they are really badly written. You know. Uh, so, and hearing Gilbert Godfrey read him, I mean, that's just, that's even more horrifying, <laughs> you know. That makes me want to hear the audio book version. <laughs> yeah, if you can't, I'm sure it's on YouTube, you can find it. Um, it is just like, it's the stuff of nightmares, you know, in all, in all the best ways, you know. Because uh, Gilbert Godfrey's funny, but it, but it just shows you the how bad the prose is, you know. Right. So, um, what are... I know you've, you've talked about your writers, but do you have like a favorite book or two? Like when you think about uh, one, one or two books that you can say, yeah, these are my favorites. Well, there's books I come back to, like I'm growing rereading books that uh, I've had uh, for a number of years. Uh, one of the ones I'm reading now is uh, Fetterman. Um, so I'm reading him currently. He's kind of an obscure writer. He's a French guy who's settled in America and he does like a lot of postmodern stuff. So I wouldn't say he's my favorite per se, but it's a fun book. It's all about a guy, a French guy who's joined the American army. And right now he's trying to travel to, uh, he's been a bureaucratic mix up. He hasn't gotten his pay. So he's traveling up to, um, an army camp, uh, pretty far away to get his pay before he has to go across the country to ship out to Korea, uh, set in the 1950s. Um, and he never really gets there because he keeps digressing and talking about things or playing with language. So, so books I like, but um, Camus is always good. So you might have seen some of the existentialism and frequently asked questions. And mm-hmm. 
uh, those sort of deeper philosophical matters. Uh, Hemingway, as far as style, is very sparse. I always preferred that. Although I just reread a bunch of Faulkner, um, you know, who's up excellent as well, but completely the opposite direction. Yes. Um, you know, a lot of um, older writers, Dante, you know, another one that's probably uh, for frequently asked questions uh, popped up a lot. Um, Raymond Carver, very good short story writer. Flannery O'Connor. Um, many, many good writers, Kathy Acker. Um, so that, that was where I went after uh, the genres. Um, you know, I got into mystery and detective stuff and James Bond type novels. And then I got into more what you call mainstream literature and started reading, you know, the literature for capital L, so to speak, and reading worldwide literature, James Joyce, you know, or a guy from Indonesia, Tower, I think is how it's pronounced. All sorts of things uh, from around the world, but also American literature in particular. Uh, and, you know, we get exposed to a lot of British literature and Irish literature in, in America as a, the common language with, with English. Um, so we read a lot of those writers as well. And that's so I've stayed there for a long time, but then also underground independent writers getting interested in zines. Um, so I'm reading um, my buddy uh, Crazy Carl I'm reading his book again, Blood Real. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Not, not. I'm a character sometimes in some of those uh, things, and not everything he says that I actually do or, or say. So it's uh, nice but, uh, when they take your life and they kind of uh, or your persona and, and twist it and make it what they want. <laughs> yes, so it's fun rereading the, the books. Um, so I'm just trying to kind of slim down possessions. At one point, I tried, you know, hung on to every book I had probably for like the first mm-hmm. thirty years of my life. You know, even Dr. Seuss up to whatever I was reading. Um, that particular time, and then I had too much books. It was just two tires moving too often, and carrying them was a burden. So I've been shedding possessions for like the last yeah. twenty years now, and so I'd like to get down to about a room's worth of stuff. And so there'd be very few books left, but um, some of them are so fun I can't. You know, I want to reread them before I uh, go sure. against Spiderman or Robinson or um, you know all those books. So that that has sort of been a journey. I still enjoy the genres. I still enjoy things like Stephen King and. Uh, you know, I maybe don't read fantasy and sci-fi as much as I did. I still read some comics uh, as well, uh, but, you know, the more, you're more selective. You've seen a lot of them. I like uh, rock and roll biographies. Those are kind of interesting to read as well as far as biographies. I just read a biography about, um, speaking of books, this one's interesting. Robert Kennedy Jr. wrote a book about, like, throughout his family. Not a book I'd be particularly interested in. I'm not, you know, fascinated with Kennedy's or American history. I just got interested into it because I read a review that the guy had no reviews. And I thought that's kind of weird. And the guy said that it's because um, uh, he basically blames the CIA for killing his father and uncle. I was like, okay, well, that's weird. And I looked into it, and actually he didn't get many reviews. He had like a mainstream story in CBS, um, wasn't really a review. And he had like a, a Journal of American Culture, you know, Bowling Green, Journal of Popular Culture, and Journal of American Culture Journals. Somebody had done a book review for the Journal of American Culture, but he was kind of like, there was nothing else there, even on his Harper Collins. It was a major um, uh, publisher that put out this book. It must have did well. I got it in my local library. But the two things that, you know, they would have like all these quotes from people. You know, Mark Justice says, you know, Kennedy's book is fantastic. You know, it's a fascinating trip down American history, published in Publishers Weekly or whatever. He has what appears to be a vanity website, Family Choice Awards or something. It looks like if you and I wrote a book about knitting, we don't know anything about knitting. But if we wrote a book together about knitting and paid a hundred dollars, we get a family choice award problem. Okay, I guess I can't say that for sure. But no, that it, sounds like a pretty good deal. I've, you know, I've got, 
I, I got my product placement back here, and they don't <laughs> they don't have awards yet. <laughs> yes, why? Well, yes, those are my books. <laughs> Independent um, Catholic News, and so I thought that was weird, you know. So like, if, if, uh, and for that reason, it probably there was some weird stuff in the media that maybe prevented his book coming out. But you know, that that's a tough road to hoe to go forward with for us indie writers because we're not Kennedys even. You know, yeah. we're really obscure and. And, you know, if that can happen to a major writer, I don't feel too bad for him. I think he's been number one on Amazon for his subsequent book about Fauci for the past two months. So we're well, that's, that's very – talk about writing to audience. I mean, yeah. it's a very – another, you know, controversial figure. So that makes sense, Yeah. you know, to write about something that's in the news daily. You're probably going to get some interest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? In fact, if you're writing about the guys who do, like, genre stuff, I mean, that's, that's a perfect thing. You can make a lot of money appealing. If there's an audience there that demands the books – you know, that's it. Where yeah. if you're kind of doing something different, you you kind of have to build your audience. Mm-hmm. They exist at all. Yeah, really I saw a ready-made audience for it. I saw about sixty books. Someone sent me a link about some book on Amazon about the COVID, and there were like sixty other books like that just came out in the last few months about COVID. Oh. All of them with like one star. You know, like this is just pure bullshit. It's you know, right. I mean, none of these books have any like basis for any kind of research or anything and but these people are like oh yeah i'm gonna put COVID on a cover i'm gonna make some money because people are gonna buy it you know and i think yeah. it's just crass uh irresponsibility you know in that in that regard it's like you know in the today show i i just don't understand who who's running the the circus there uh early on in the pandemic you know like 2019 even 2020 maybe um they had inter- were interviewing an author who was writing a book about this family under a quarantine during during this COVID lockdown, and Savannah wow. Guthrie was interviewing him, and uh, you know he's a fiction author. I never heard of him, and so she's asking, "Well, how does it end?" He's like, "I don't know. I haven't finished it yet." I'm like, "Are you are you kidding me? You had this guy on. Did like no one find out that he hadn't finished his book or hadn't published it or right. hadn't sold it? But here you are bringing on this." nobody who hadn't finished his damn book right and and then talking about him like he's some celebrity you know and i'm like are you are you kidding me so i wrote to him, i said savannah i've got four books done bring right. me on but did she no 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 you know what do you guys talk the, there's not the newspapers don't do book reviews much i mean there's a bunch of websites but it's hard to even get a review you um, get those people are now making a living doing book reviews I mean, this is what they do yeah, for Amazon. Right. They do it on Facebook. They do it for, for Instagram. I've seen people saying, you know, I will review your book. You know, I will read it. Um, you know, pay me X amount of dollars. I will yeah. buy your buy your book so it's a legitimate purchase and give you a review on Amazon, on my site. I mean, it's part of their, what they do. They right. only make like, I mean, it's not a whole lot of money. It's, you know, they charge like 30 bucks. So, you know, I don't know how they... They don't read the book probably for thirty bucks. I can't. I can't imagine if you're paying like sixteen, seventeen bucks for a book. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to write a review. Yeah. Um, it has to be boilerplate. Is my very guess. general boilerplate kind of things, right? I love that the characters were fun. Blah blah blah. Yeah. You know. It's a cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, what uh, what first like made you want to write? You know, what was the first inkling you had? Like, yeah, I, I think writing, this is what I want to do. 
just the, I enjoyed reading. So being an only child, um, you know, I think uh, early on had like a lot of friends in the neighborhood. Then we moved and it was a neighborhood without really any kids. Uh, there weren't many kids around. So um, just have to entertain myself. So well, we could read a bunch of stuff, but then, you know, writing's fun, drawing's fun. Uh, so doing that, those sort mm-hmm. of things. Uh, so that headed into that, that territory. I think Dungeons and Dragons was helpful because you're kind of working together with your friends to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, when your friends aren't around, uh, you can, you know, write your own uh, Dungeons and Dragons story and then write it up as a fantasy novel. I, I remember doing that as well. I don't think I ever published right. that or anything like that. But um, I never knew yeah. you gamed. I've known you for 35 years, and I've, I never knew that you gamed. Yeah, I kind of got, by college, I was sort of out of it. Um, mm-hmm. I think I got more into music there. I did a little bit with Eric Storch, remember, in Bowling Green. Yeah, yeah. Realms. He had uh, Access and Allies, um, mm-hmm. the board game. Because he used to have those gaming weekends, and I, I yeah, would go so every every time. Those. Yeah, I would be down there the whole weekend. It was, you know, but it was, it was fun. I, I remember going to one of those and playing, and I beat these guys. I, I think I was the, the, the Russians, and I, I beat I want access and allies, but it was like, okay, these, these aren't really my friends and I'm not that much into it. Right. Like, what was the point of doing this? Sure. Uh, so it was fun, but yeah, at that point I was kind of getting out of it. When I moved back to Newcastle, Pennsylvania, where I, I grew up, some of my friends were still playing uh, D&D and some, you know, whatever was popular. Then. Was it Traveler, a science fiction? Yeah, fun. Traveler. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, they were into that, I think. And I think I tried a couple of times, but it just, I just wasn't feeling it anymore. I kind sure. of, uh, just not, but I used to love. It. I love Gamma World and Top Secret and Star Frontiers. They had the Marvel oh, Superheroes game. Yeah, CSR put out a lot of good stuff. Yes, um, I think I had some of the other, like the James Bond game that was by somebody else, one of the other publishers. D and D being the biggest one. Right, uh, right. And then I think music. You know, you get interested in music and girls and things like that, and just you know, just kind of uh, went by the wayside. I still play it. My my son's into it now. So, you know, we do real basic D&D. Yeah. Somehow. I don't know if he was like a, some oh, that's awesome. star or something. So he's been playing a little bit, and he thinks it's fun. But, you know, we sure. do simple rules. It's like right. monster attacks, and you attack none of the, like, three attacks per melee round or anything like that. It's just too complex. Yeah. So we kinda, but he, he seems to have fun. Yeah, oh, that's that's great. That's that's why you play. You know, it, it's just fun. Escape is fun. Yeah. Um, which uh, that sets me up for the second question I want to ask, because I want to ask one before you may not remember, but you know, what was the first story you remember ever writing? Like, do you remember what you like the very first thing you ever wrote? Oh, probably like, uh, probably like very early on. It was probably even maybe even pre-grade school. Um, so probably, yeah, probably pre-grade school, but very early on, I used to do like a, a newspaper for the house. Oh, like, nice. Parents and the stuffed animals. <laughs> so just what the bear was doing, you know, and they would have ridiculous adventures, you know. And so I don't think I have a copy. Made my mom has a copy. So yeah, that, well, that's that awesome. was probably the first thing, you know. And then school, we, we they remember they would do like creative writing things, and we'd write a story based on something. I remember doing some of that. I remember doing comic books with uh, my friends in school, and then work on the, the school newspaper and the school literary magazines and things like that, and then college, you know, work for the newspaper and um, mm-hmm. as a creative writing minor, you were a creative writing major, if I remember correctly. Right, correct. yeah. Right. So we, we, we wrote stories in classes and, right. and you know, sometimes people would have little zines. I don't even know if we called them zines back then. They just were 
magazines people put out by themselves and later yeah, on. Yeah, I don't remember. I had I had one for a, a couple. I had one for about six months going. Like yeah. a little, I call it the Captain Howdy Gazette or something yes. like that. You know. Right? Yeah, those are fun. So I, I like those a, a lot. Um, so doing those, I think I got the, probably the first official story. I think Prairie Margins. I had a story about just the experience I had in high school where mm-hmm. uh, friends and I were bored after school driving around in one of my friends' cars, and there was a naked old man walking down the street. He probably had dementia or something. And something happened, and you know people just were following around, kind of jeering at him until the cops came and took him away. And um, you know, hopefully, I hope got him some help. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Anymore. Uh, but I think we put that in and um, turned that as a basis into a short story, uh, into Prairie Margins, uh, probably something I've written in a creative writing class. Okay. I, I'm going to be all fancy now. I oh, was the, uh, I was the fiction editor for Prairie Margins one oh, year. Oh, maybe you might yes. have been my ticket in. I might not have known that. Yeah, yes, exactly. I, uh, I was one of the fiction editors. Yes. I, uh, I think it was like the 1990. 90 issue that year I was getting my BFA finishing up okay. with that. And I remember uh, being asked to be by someone else in, the, in our creative writing class. We, um, she's like, you want to be the fiction editor? I'm like, yeah, of course. Sure. Why not? Yeah. I knew it was a pretty prestigious kind of a book for like, you know, undergrad writing. Right. And uh, so we, we whole bunch of us, we went down to miles and uh, got pizza and beer, and and we read through the stories, and we started talking about them, and we basically edited the book at Miles, you know, awesome. which was kind of cool, yeah. So there's my swanky connection to, uh, you know, to Prairie Margins. Very so, well, yeah. Um, I, I'm glad that you mentioned D and D because what I wanted to talk to you about is this concept of world building and character building and plot and D and D really kind of creates the fundamentals of all of those things. You know, when you're, when you're designing a character, you have to think sometimes of your backstory or your, you know, the DM will do that. But if you're creating your own adventures, then you definitely have to think of the concept of a plot, but then that plot has to take place in a larger world. So when to applying it to fiction, Thinking about world building, like, you know, when you designed your world, I mean, for the pornographic, you know, PFE, um, that was in a world that was kind of almost existed because it was kind of straddling the lines of fiction and reality. Yeah. Um, but when you did like for frequently asked questions about being dead, that's, that's like a whole other multiple levels of fantasy reality. So right. how do you design your world? Like world building, when you think of a, a work, a piece of fiction, and you know it's going to be a kind of this larger work, or even Edna's employment agency, which right. takes place in an employment agency, but you have these characters who you kind of learn about on the periphery. They have their own right. little kind of sometimes very sad sad moments of these takeaways it's reminded me a little bit of um winesburg ohio yeah. in that in that regard um even though i can't stand that book um oh it's a great book i, I have to read it again when i read it i was in a way different headspace so i need to reread it i need to reread it but i was like jesus christ everyone's so, so they're just like so uh everyone's so messed up in this little town yeah. but now i might have a might be much more appealing to me um but so how do you bring a sense of world building when you're creating a new, a new piece and you know, you have this world to create, how, how do you, what's your process? It's kind of organic. I don't really focus on the world. My biggest challenge usually is how to tell the story. Um, so whether it's a story that's kind of set in the world outside per se, or it's a, a fantasy type world, 
Um, so for, for the emus, I played in bands for like 10 years and living in bands. Start with the Escape Beetle Pigs, the band we were in. We all, um, you know, we had the Red House for that summer, all basically all together. You would come up and stay with us. And uh, I think Jim, our bass player, lived somewhere else, but Simon, the drummer, and I were there for the summer. So that sort of experience. And then I think you and Jim lived together for a year. And so there are all these crazy band stories. Um, so I took 10 years and I just kind of condensed that down. And then I had the members of the band tell the story um, in different ways. And so, you know, everybody kind of has a piece of the chapter. So once I had that established, that was pretty easy. I just thought about the funny stories and then the characters kind of wrote themselves. Uh, for blog, Love Omega Glee, like the organizing structure was the 2012 calendar. This is making fun of the notion that People always have where they set a date the world's going to end for whatever reason. And, and that particular one was there was the Mayan calendar was coming to an end. And instead of, you know, just getting a starting a new calendar like we all did at the beginning of this year, you know, the Mayans are just going to blow up the world instead, apparently. So uh, they do things differently there. So obviously the world didn't end, but I was writing it before that happened when that hysteria, which had real consequence. There were people that killed their families because they thought the world were going to end. Yeah. Crazy stuff like that. Y2K, same thing. Yeah. You know, people yeah, were like apocalyptic myths. Yeah, I was hoping to find a bunch of people who are willing to like get rid of all their goods and like sell their houses. Like I was going to buy a bunch of houses for like ten bucks yeah. a piece, you know, because they're not yeah. going to need it. And uh, no, nah, never happened. I was disappointed. You know, the electricity so, stayed on. Nothing happened. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yep. So I did have a can of. I did have one. My 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 Y two K stash. I had a uh, I had a extra can of bean with bacon soup set aside <laughs> in case in case everything went down. I had my my survival ratchets right there. You're good. You got your can opener. You're good to go. Yeah. Start a fire to cook it. Um, So that one used the calendar, just counted down the days. And that one's kind of a fantasy world because it just took like our existing world. It was probably started right in 2008. So what would the world look like in 2012? If, um, you know, um, things continued in a certain way. And so it's sort of apocalyptic kind of uh, world. Things are falling apart. Uh, basically, uh, George W. Bush never left office. He's been replaced by a robot version of Dick Cheney. That's some sort of cyborg um, that's uh, that's running the world and uh, all the sorts. Although I don't think I call him Bush in there. I think somebody else had Senator Poor Peoples in there. Is running to be sort of a, a fascist, totalitarian, uh, popularly elected dictator. If that um, seems like a contradiction, but it can't happen. Uh, yeah. Some of these guys end up first getting democratically elected and then. Get worse. So the world's kind of falling apart and it just follows. It alternates kind of viewpoints between the two major characters is the guy uh, who does a zine, a wrestling, professional wrestling zine, and his life's kind of falling apart. He hadn't, he didn't get married to the girl he thought he was going to get married to. He didn't get the job maybe he thought he was going to get. He's moved back home with his parents. And then this sort of woman who does a conspiracy theory zine and her life, she's kind of thinks the world's going to basically end and the heck of it, she just gave up her old life and just she's going to focus on saving the world. Uh, and so this characters fall in love and meet, and there's some other minor characters in there. It just kind of counts down the dates. So that the dates were sort of the organizing thing as all the, the pieces came together. But that was a pretty easy world to build because it was just the outside world if, like, worst-case scenarios came in, you know. Yeah, like an absurdist, almost like a, um, like an, like a, an Alan Moore kind of take on yeah. things you know yeah right it, it, yeah. Comedy, but yeah. yes right um yeah i yeah alan moore I'd like to talk with him sometime i get the feeling i mean i know he's really brusque but he takes himself so seriously like you know, ease up man you're gonna hurt yourself uh 
He's actually quite a bit of humor. He, he's a, he? Okay. He's a I, I just what I've seen. I mean, he's, I mean, he's brilliant and I love his work, but, um, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's funny. Blog love Omega Glee is the only book of yours that I haven't finished. It's mammoth. I mean, it's a yeah. huge book because you have this exchange of letters like every day, yeah. uh, for this whole year, you know, going on. And these these letters are like, you know, Numerous pages. It's like this book's about a thousand pages long, something like that. I think it's two hundred fifty thousand words or so. So I'm not sure. Yeah, it's pretty long. That's about a thousand. That's about yeah. a thousand pages. Yes, yeah, it's about two hundred fifty words on a page, give or take, three hundred words. So it's close to that, maybe eight hundred fifty pages. So it's a mammoth. It's a mammoth book. But um, I mean, but so that's the only one I've not finished. So I would page a day thing on a leap year. I just sat during a leap year. I just read one a day. So, right, and that's it's like yeah. So that's why I, th- I knew when we were talking about about that how you were were able to write these kind of letters back and forth and kind of kind of make that you know what it is and um, within that context setting up this kind of kooky world you know. But I thought that was a really marvelous way of structuring the story in a way that was kind of non traditional, but. Yeah. But, well, I mean, well, non-traditional is Dracula, I guess. You know, it's letters, you know. And, um, yeah, so I thought that was was good. I I really liked that. So when you think of characters, you know, how do you begin to create and develop them? Do they, like, pop in your head? Or, you know, how how do your characters evolve? They kind of take a life of their own. Um, so like for emus, I just tried to like get the Uber guitar player, or Uber bass players shrunk down all the basses I played with all the guitar players and, you know, and what would that person be like? And it's, it was kind of interesting to see how that developed for, um, blog blog make a glee. I've been involved in zines, So I knew those people were, they originally were going to be zine publishers, but at, back in 2008, um, zines were kind of changing. They weren't. If you, they weren't the cheapest way to publish anymore. People are going to do a blog instead. And I thought, well, by 2012, yeah. there's still are zines out there today, but it's different. A lot of them are artistic zines. They're very expensive. They're very focused on um, print, the materiality of everything. So they aren't, you know, the cheap photocopy things because it was the cheapest way to do it. So I made them bloggers, but I knew a lot of people from the zine community. So I just kind of made them the man-woman archetype, you know, I, I used as well. Um, and then for frequently about being dead, um, that one just ca- came from, I'd taken Blog Love and Make Glee, and there was something called textnovel.com, I think, at one point. It was a website, and I guess I should switch hats now. There you go. Yeah, it's not that long since Christmas, but right. um, they had the, they were doing these cell phone novels, which were very popular in Japan. Right, yes. Traveling on the train and writing it on their yeah. phone, which I would drive me crazy to try to text text a, a story. Yeah. Some of them were extraordinarily popular in Japan. They never really caught on here, but there was yeah. a, a literary agent, I think his name was Stan Soper, and he wanted to try it. Uh, and so he had this website, and I just was really serializing blog love immediately on there to you know, see it, let other people know it was out there. But I was like, well, I'm going to come back and write a, a real a novel out of text for you. Uh, and when I came back, he had like changed his format. Eventually, the, the website went to, was defunct, but before it changed its format, I just didn't like the new format, it didn't fit. So I, I wrote this story for him. It was like um, text messages from the dead, and they were all like, whatever the limit is, 160 characters it was for a text back then. It was a certain 
text limit and they changed the technology evolved but there was a limit almost similar to the original twitter limit i think twitter was shorter it was like 140 characters okay uh, so i kept it to 160 it was like 25 texts or whatever and it was just this um i just thought it would be absurd like after you, you know like anywhere if you call up the cable company and complain your power's out they'll they're going to send you a survey for your customer service or you go buy some groceries giant eagle wants you to do a survey you know so i thought it'd be absurd like after when someone died someone just asked them a survey like what'd you think of your experience living you know how would you rate it on a scale of one to ten sir or ma'am um so i was like okay wouldn't that be great like if we did this thing so that that was a story and then i kept thinking about that little short story and i was like wow that you could actually build something there out of that and that, that that'd be pretty funny you know let's and it just kind of the characters developed organically out of that you know just the, the generic agent who shows up to interview you after you're dead, asking you, you know, how would you rate? What was your favorite part of life? If right. you could change one thing about life, what would it be, Mark? You know? <laughs> so in a way, because um, that's kind of was, was kind of dovetailing into what I wanted to talk about next, the creative process. And you did not give me a copy of your question, people. The, I want to say that. The, but the, the, the characters or the plot, and the, when the characters show up, they have a they have a job to do, so it almost becomes what they do and how they evolve is almost organic to, to the nature of their their place in the story. Yeah. Like like you said, your agents show up, and then you're just imagining, okay, what would they ask? Right. These recently dead people. This is their job. So in a way that the character shows up, and what they do defines kind of who they are. Is that would that be a fairly yeah. accurate? Yeah, the characters they tend to take, you know, many writers say this, they take a life of their own, they almost write themselves. So you get a good character, you know who this person would just be like another person you know very well, you kind of know how he or she's going to react to things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so they develop, as far as plots go, uh, they're getting into kind of like the writing method. One thing is to, and I don't know if you have a, like a, a lot of people, like someone showing this to a creative writing class or something, but as far as methods go, this is the method I typically use is just, when you get an idea, write it down because they're going to slip away. It's like trying to remember a dream. You're going to get busy at the day and forget. So usually write it down a little post-it and copy it in a little notebook. And then when you get enough ideas, like if it's a central idea around a novel, because like, I also write songs and poems and things, so something short that's just that or a short story has fewer ideas. But it's something like a novel, you know, get all those ideas together. And then I, I would kind of just have them organized and then try to kind of, once I had an idea where the story was going, um, kind of organize them into a plot, like an outline, mm-hmm. and then almost for that point, plan to station to station baseball and just try to get from one point to another point. You can always change the order if it doesn't work, but that just gives you something. And then drafting, you just crank it out. I mean, yeah. just, there's nothing like getting it down. Then you got to comb through it. Sometimes you got to extensively revise things. Um, and then editing and proofreading. Proofreading, man, is a lost art. I, I mentioned that Kennedy book I just read earlier. They have. Like it's clearly a Rand spell check in that book, and I don't think the CIA is picking on him or messing on him. I see this in books that are totally non-controversial as well. But like they have, he has Barack Obama running for president in 2012, the first time, 2008. So that date's wrong. He has some some incident that happened in 1962 with the mafia and the CIA in 1972. I'm pretty sure it's 1962. There were just a lot of typos, like things that spell checker wouldn't catch. And, Right. Kind of a lost art, whether it's an independent book or that one's like Harper Collins. Man, higher. Yeah, no one's doing the fact checking. Yeah, well, fact right. fact checking, he's he's solid on, but I mean, it does. Dovetail. Well, he's getting those dates wrong. Because I thought him as a reader, you know, like okay, that that can't be 
your dad's dead in 72. So this incident with your dad has, you must mean 62, you know? So right. didn't catch it. Spell checker won't catch it. And nobody goes back through and reads it. The author may have even Kennedy may have had it right. It may have gotten messed up in the proof stage. Sure. But at some point, somebody needs to do that final polish and independent books can be even worse. You'll see things like Y O U R for what they mean. You are Y O U uh, possibly R E or, you know, you see stuff like that. That's again, spell checker won't pick up because mm-hmm. it, it's spelled correctly both ways. They just don't mean the exact same thing. Right. Um, so yeah, everybody should do a little more proofreading. So doing that, that last pass when you're sick of looking at the thing, do it one more time. You may not catch everything. There's always yes. stuff that slips through, but you'll catch enough that it'll make it a pretty solid, solid piece. So that tends to be how the, the plot and the, the method sort of work on. And then if you know the characters, even if you have something that's kind of out of character later on, when you're revising or editing, you, you'll say, oh, well, that character, he said he would. That's just not him. I need to mm-hmm. change that to another character or take that out or do something different with that. Yeah. That's funny that you mentioned about the, the proofreading. Uh, on my first book, I had five um, five beta readers, you know, and there were mistakes that went through all five of them. That it didn't show up until after I saw it in print. Well, that sucks. You know, and well, some people were commenting on the story. Like you, you, you looked at the story. And other right. people were focused on the details. And that's kind of how I found one of my, like one of the few people who, who like read everything I, I write, which is really hum- very humbling. And I appreciate her. Um, she's become like my detail editor. Oh, you know, good. I send her, I do the rough, I do the draft and I do a revision. I get it in a point where I, okay, I send it to her and she finds like all the typos that I don't see. It's so sure. easy because your brain's filling in all those little gaps, you know, like, you know what you're trying to say. Right. Um, you know, so I, I appreciate it. And I've got other, other proofreaders, other who like to look for those things too. So I, I appreciate having that circle, that community of, re- yeah. of writers and readers who are willing to do that work, you know, um, tell them to contact Harper Collins. They apparently need some help. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Um, I know that corporate books a, a lot. Yeah. You didn't see that 15, 20 years ago in corporate books. No, it seemed to be a... Books, not in the corporate books. Yeah. Now you see it in everything. Yeah. I like the Dick Tracy mug. Very nice. Budget trust. Yeah, probably uh, hauled out of the basement. Um, yeah, it was like circa like the 1990 Dick uh, Tracy? Yeah, or movie, 1990. Yeah, nice. That's cool. I'm not um, a Dick Tracy fan. It was more right. like broke a mug and needed a mug and found it in the <laughs> My mom had probably bought it in 1991 when it was on clearance. I used to read it when I was a kid and I never really got into it. I didn't like the movie. I'm not a, not a Warren Beatty fan, not a Madonna fan, but I liked the look of the film. I mean, they were doing those garish colors. They were trying to make it look like a Sunday comic in full color. And for that, I, I, I applaud them, but I just, I don't, I don't care. You know, it's just the movie is just, eh. I don't know if I ever, I might've saw it once. Um, I think we just got it cause it was clearance and a, and a comic thing. But yeah. uh, do you remember the pig song about, um, you know, I took a poop next to Phil Donahue. Oh yeah. 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 Well, that was the Warren Beatty was on that show. And that, that was, you can swear if you just want to just let you know, you can swear it up on this channel. Yeah. Well, maybe it was, I took a shit with Phil Donahue. It was. I, I do it. remember that song Yeah, okay. for, PF, for PFE. Yeah. So, so what had happened, he was promoting Dick Tracy. It was the summer of 1990. And uh, they were taping, they would take two Phil Donahue shows. Now, you know, I don't know 
everybody knows all the references, but Phil Donahue was a very popular television talk show host in the 1980s. He probably started even earlier in the 70s, maybe even late 60s. But um, so he predates Oprah. He was more popular. Right. Oprah kind of became yeah, more Oprah popular. took over his slot. She even kind of yeah. imitated imitated his way of like interviewing people and the, the way he held his cards and the style that he did. She imitated him quite a bit. Yeah. So he, he's a, he was a good dude. Um, you know, he did a lot of controversial stuff, you know, he'd bring things on. So very interesting character, but it was still, you know, daytime TV, you know, aimed at probably housewives primarily. And, um, but anyway, he does the show. One first show is about gold diggers. So about these women who married old men for their money. And it's a controversial show. And then, so then they have a back-to-back show. It's Warren Beatty promoting Dick Tracy, who's very nice. Uh, at least, you know, he's very personable and all that. Um, so he, he, uh, you know, I didn't really know much about the guy before, so he's promoting it. He's having such a good time with Donahue, they decide to have a second show. And they say, okay, we're going to ask you to stay for a third hour, but we know you've been here a while, you can take a bathroom break. And the bus driver and I, of course, um, we had to go, because it was like a bus trip from Newcastle to New York. Um, and we didn't pay attention, I guess, to the signs, and we went into the executive uh, restroom. At MB- it was Rockefeller Center, so I think that's where he's filming at the NBC Studios. So we went in there. And uh, that's how the, the Donahue star, because Donahue also came in there. And I don't know if you remember the particular stories that, that created the song, but basically I, I go to the urinal, um, doing my business. The bus driver goes into one of the stalls doing his business, and he's telling me, uh, I don't know about you, Fred, but, uh, man, these shows just must be for bored housewives. You know? And he's just going on and on about how awful an experience it is and how awful Phil Donahue is and how awful a show is. Meanwhile, Phil Donahue, I see um, – like goes, I think he's into the stall or something. I know, I know he's there, and the bus driver does it. Um, and then the bus driver comes out and sees Phil Donahue washing his hands. with like, "Mr. Donahue, great show!" And he's like, "Yeah, right, buddy," and walks out. And that's that's. Uh, I was like, "Man, that's a good. We got to make that song." That's great. That's great. And then that yeah, the chats. Yeah, I think we played that only the once at the PFE show. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest song, but uh, it was no, fun. that was good. But it was like up there with you know. All those other songs that we were going to do, we never we never did release for that last Pigs album, like Chased by Chickens, and uh, yeah. we never had a, a legit recording of Candle, which I think is a, was a great song. A lot of yeah, good, a lot of good. It, uh, last year, I mean, a solo <laughs> album, a severe platter. Yeah, this is this is this is a look I've seen on. This is what you use for your picture on all your books. Yeah, you know, you're uh, wrestling. Yeah, you know, uh, yes. <laughs> you're you're like your wrestling, your uh, Mexican wrestling mask meets yeah. Mickey Mouse kind of thing. Or, yeah. or or sex slave gimp, one of the two. You know? Yeah, well, it's it a Mexican wrestling mask. I was at the Pittsburgh Comic Con, I think, in 2002. I think his name was Rafael Navarro. He did uh, Sonambulo. I might be mispronouncing some of the things. I apologize. But it was a, a comic book series about a Mexican wrestler who was a detective. Um, and he was selling these, these masks. And I had, like, a budget, I think, of $100. And I spent, like, $75, $80. And I had twenty dollars left. I was like, "Well, you know, I could save it, or you know, I'm at a comic con. Maybe I should try something new." And he had these masks for twenty dollars. I was like, "Oh, you know, I got twenty dollars. Okay." And I bought it, and I was like, "What am I going to do with this thing now?" But I've made great use of it over the past twenty years. You know, I use I, it for publicity stuff. I use it on Halloween. Um, so yeah. it it's, uh, can be fun. It's kind of become but, your yeah, look. I would recommend writers uh, try to promote yourself wearing a wrestling mask. It is not a, a big selling point. Yeah. yeah. But it looks good, it though. Looks, it does. Right, right, right. Um, 
I, I appreciate you telling me about your writing process. Again, that was, a, again, another question. It's like you're anticipating my questions in order as they're going, no. but that's, that's cool. No, it's great. Because um, I, I was going to ask you, you know, uh, what kind of organization do you use? But you've just shown me. I mean, you get your ideas, you develop them, then you make an outline, you draft, you revise, you know. And, and like you, you know, I've got a book that I keep all my ideas in. You know, I just start writing down ideas because you never know what's going to, where it's yeah. going to be yet. But I don't want to forget it. And right. I'll go back and I'll, I'll have like scenes of dialogue that I, two days later I'll com- go back to it and like I completely forgotten, but like all of that. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so glad I, I wrote it down, yeah. you know? And then, you know, outlining is really important. I try to do a detailed outline depending on the length of the book, you know, um, like Gage Black, that outline might have been like only six or seven pages because it's a pulp length book. It's not very long. Sure. But like the, the work book I'm working on now, my second cozy, that's, that's like a 23 page outline, you know, it's, wow. a, yeah. And it's color coded and, and stuff like that. Um, but you know, I, I, for me, that's helpful to kind of have that. I mean, an outline is great, but it's still like what you said, you know, you just got to crank it out. It, you yeah. still have to write the sentence at a time. You're building that, the brick, the great wall, one yeah. brick at a time. You have to get to where you're going, even though you know where you're going, you still have to create the pathway for the reader. Yeah, and I think it's uh, Anne Lamott. Uh, I think is a poet, or maybe she's a creative writing teacher. But she's called her shitty first drafts. Uh, you got to get that out of your system, and then you comb back through it because it's when it's just like the blank space staring at you. Not a lot you can do with that. It could be anything, but once you have a territory, then it's real easy to mine through it. And so you got to get something down on paper, and that's where the pulp writers. I read a book called The Pulp Jungle by I think Frank Gruber. And the guy would, you know, obviously they were paid per word. So he'd try to work as little as possible. He'd get up and crank out 2,000 words, take the rest of the day off. And and that's a great approach for drafting. I don't know a great approach for the rest of the process, but just get it down once you have your outline. Follow the outline. You can always change it later, but get something on paper you can work with or on on the screen you can work with. Yeah, the rewrite sometimes takes longer than the drafting, you know, a revision. But it really depends. I, I you know, I know this, like this book, I stopped about halfway because I started taking classes and, and stuff, but I, I knew even toward the last few weeks of writing that it it was kind of stalling. And okay. there were some things that were just like, there's just not working for me. I had the basic story, but there were two characters who I needed to go back and develop because they're really flat. And like they were, they were mentioned in the first book and now I'm bringing them to the more forefront in this one, but I just, I had no idea who they were. You know, I knew what they looked like and that little else. So that, that was a struggle. And then I just knew, um, you know, the last scene I wrote actually before I stopped was like, okay, this, this is going to have to be rewritten. You know, it just, it just felt flat. Even I knew it going into it because, you, know, you know, there are times when you're writing, when you feel like, oh, okay, I'm, something is clicking. The cylinders are right. working. And there are other times where you're like, I'm not feeling it, you right. know? And it doesn't mean that just because you're not feeling it doesn't mean it's not good. Right. Um, it just, it doesn't resonate with you for some reason. Um, now I will share like the, the last one I did, you know, death's head, uh, again, another pulp. I felt like nothing writing that whole book. There was one chapter, one day, one day, literally one day where I felt like I was connected to the material and where I like, Oh, "Oh, okay. I think I did a good job here. Yeah. I like the book, but, but the, Everything else was like, I have no idea if it's any good or not. And some of the really early feedback was so encouraging because like, 
you know, one, one, one of my beta readers who is the one who finds all the details, she wrote back immediately. She, she read it. She, she didn't stop reading it all night. She said, I, I couldn't just put it down. Uh, and she said, um, I want you to stop worrying about your cozy. I want you to write the next book of this series because I need to know what happens. <laughs> and I, I was just so blown away by that. I was really surprised. So, you know, I guess sometimes as writers, we, we want the connection. We want to know, yeah, this is resonating. But I guess sometimes it, you're not going to have that feeling. It's just going to be you just have to trust that what you're, the words that you're putting down are, are going to be okay. You know? Right. Yeah, you got to show up whether, you know, if it's, it's some days you crank out tons of words, other days you may be a sentence. You know, but you, right. It's all in process. Exactly. Right. There's almost, you know, you want that consistency. I tried to, when I was working, I mean, for, for death set, I knew I wanted to write it in a month and that was my goal. And I did wow. 30, you know, 30 days. Well, it's only, it's only like 110 pages. It's really, you know, cool. it's, it's, it's a 45,000 word, you know, yeah. uh, pulp. But when I started working as I've, as I've done more and more, my word counts would get higher. Like I wrote gauge black pretty quickly, even though that's another pulp. I was like 60,000 words but I, I i wrote that in probably i don't know six weeks from beginning to yeah. end um you know but i just it was much different process it was just very cathartic and very raw you know but i i don't know about you but have when you went from book to book did your feelings change about the act of writing like because I could never go back and write that first cozy again, not in a million years. Cause I'm, I'm a different writer. I'm a different headspace. Sure. Could, you know, when you look back at your early work, like your pornographic flabbergasted emus, do you think you could write that book again? Um, probably. Cause, uh, I think that some of the writing has changed as far as, uh, you know, the, figuring out how to be able to do it and like have a full-time job and things like the emus. I was lucky enough. I was doing teaching then and they, they were paying me like 12 months, even though I was done working. So I had money coming in. So I just took those three months. I think they were doing it just to make more interest on a you know, large institution. Or if we paid this guy over a slot tomorrow to make some money on the bank or investments. So, but I was fine with that, you know, whatever. Um, and so I just wrote it in that. And I wrote it and then I published it as a zine, serialized zine over the next two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, I did write some things like short stories, poems, songs, and whatever, but it was troublesome working full time. Um, even though I think I was still teaching then, and I would have you know a couple months off during the summer uh, to find time to write. And so, blog of make glee was like an attempt to force me to write it. I would get up at like six in the morning and write from six to eight, and then you know get ready for work, go do the day, and just kind of did that. Go to bed early, and uh, I was able to do that, and I was publishing that on a blog, like one one post a day mm-hmm. and then it's, it's, it bogged down and got, you know, personal stuff. Plus it's a really long work. Uh, eventually I finished it and then put together as a book. And then frequently, I think I, I was still teaching. I would write that kind of during the summer. And, uh, cause I had those summers that took a couple of years and Edna's was where I really finally was able to do it. Just an hour a day or half hour a day. It doesn't seem like much, but it adds up cumulatively. And I was able to write that, um, you know, probably in a year or two, despite having a, a full-time gig or everything. And the new work, um, Fast Guy Slows Down, which will probably be out this year, but doing that same approach um, is doing it. So, but, I mean, there's nothing like being able to, if you have that time, being able to write eight hours a day 
you know, like like treat it like a job. Job. Right. And some days you feel like being there, some days you don't. But if you want to get it done, you got to show up every day. So. Right. Sometimes it's a slog fest. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know, and and that's exactly is uh, even under the best of conditions. I find about three quarters of the way through writing a draft, I'm done with it. Like mentally, I'm like moved on. My brain's like saying, okay, I know how this is going to end. I've played it through 50 times. I want to write the next thing, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, no, I have to tell the story. You know, I have yeah. to put these words down and, and finish it. And it, it's like, a, it's a, it's at the end of a marathon and you're just like, you're numb, but you just keep on putting out those words. Right. You know, that's kind of what it feels like. You know, it's not exciting anymore. It's, it's just like, okay, I've had enough of this. I want to get, <laughs> I want to get it right. done. Right. Yeah, that's that's funny. That is, you have to do because that final polish is kind of like what really makes the book sometimes. I mean, just yeah, in that final that final step, and that that I also enjoy like after they're done reading them, you know, just being a reader. And usually at that point, I'm just reading for fun. I'm not proofreading. Hopefully, I've caught everything. If I haven't, you know, often it's too late or whatever. Um, usually, sometimes if it's something you know really bad. You know, go back and, and but then I got to upload all this crap to you know Amazon and Google again. So I think it's happened on one or two occasions where it's just a typo bugs me so much. I go, it's probably something no one else would notice. So I just, but it bugs me. But usually it's just just fun reading it and laughing and just being a reader. Um, that that's a really good payoff. But yeah, there's definitely a new idea has already often popped up by the end of the big project, and you're kind of wanting to move on to that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've got like eight books in the queue. They're all like oh, saying, wow. "Hey, get this! Look at this one done," you know. Right. And uh, yeah, that's it's it's exciting, but but it's just like okay, I need to get back into the discipline of writing, and that's that's what I I plan on having this draft of this new book done by April, and I want to get it done because uh, you know it just needs to be done. But uh, yeah, so. Do you ever use any writing helps like um, software like Scrivener or Babisco, anything like that? What? <laughs> yeah. Princess Leia. No, you look like the guy from Cloud City. That's what you look like. Yeah. What's his name? Elrond? I, I have no idea. Yeah. I just see him in you know, Empire Strikes Back. Windows Assistant. Yeah, exactly. Right. You just the, the things that light up. No, I use no writing um, software or anything like that. Um, I think one time I had to write a screenplay and somebody recommended I do that. And I didn't like it. And I just, you know, I just looked at some different mm. screenplays and just did it manually. They're, um, they're nice organizers. You know, they, they help yeah. you like, it's basically just self-contained, like instead of creating your own folders and, and whatever word processor you're using and your own notes, it basically says, here's a place for your plot and you could put in plots and move things around, or here's a place where you can develop your characters. And it was like a virtual cork board, you know, where you can yeah. like pin notes and stuff. And it's just a visual representation of your ideas. It, it's nice, but it, for me, it's, it, it's not necessary. You know, I right. kind of do that already with my own system. So I do type up all the notes to have them in one place, and I just call it a brainstorming file. Mm -hmm. and I just put that in on a, on a, a computer file. And then okay, so you that. draft with you write with pencil or pen and paper yeah, first. Then, then I type it in, and it's just brainstorming. And then out of that comes the outline. That's a different mm -hmm. file, and then the draft is a different file. And then I'll save the draft and the revision going through the drafts is a different file. I'll keep doing different files to find it. Mm -hmm. The last two are like the edit one. I've uh, already made the PDF. I might make it again. 
And then the proof stage is when I'm coding the ebook. And then I'll go back through. Because I don't really do the print stuff. I've done zines and do the Amazon print on demand now. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's basically the file. There, sometimes you got to quirk it a little bit. Um, you know, just move things around to fit their software because they'll think the picture bleeds too much and you got to shrink it a little bit. So you got to play around with it sometimes based on whatever arbitrary rules they have set up at the time. But yeah. For the most part, the proofreading is uh, to go through the coding. I use a um, sigil. It's an ebook coder. You can do okay. that. Although I noticed the last LibreOffice, you can um, just create an EPUB. But I'm not sure. Since I use it as a proofing stage, I, I just do it manually still. Okay. Yeah. I I, I do everything through KDP because they have that as well and it's um, yeah. a, a different way to set up the document you know so yeah I, there are so many ways to to do self-publishing now i mean kdp has completely disrupted the publishing marketplace yeah. and and publishing's not on a on a good footing anyway when i was doing research for a paper for a for a class that i was in this past summer um you know, I found out some like terrifying realities about the publishing world. You know, a book gets published by a major publisher, it'll probably sell a thousand copies or fewer right. in its lifetime. Right. You know, and I'm, and most authors don't make don't make more than their advance payment. You know, right. they get a, they get a five thousand dollar advance or something, unless you're Stephen King or something like that, and you have right. a built in audience. But publishing houses aren't aren't promoting writers anymore too. The writers have to do their own marketing, right. and and so that's a that's like. My, you know, people were always asking on these Facebook pages and like writers groups, like, well, is it better to be self-published or try to find a publisher? Because that's like the dream. I said, well, maybe you used to have been the only way of doing it. I said, but now with self-publishing, why would you want to be published when you're you're going to make more money per sale? You still have to do all your own marketing right. and promotion. And you're and you're going to have to then, like with traditional publishers, say they print 100,000 of your books and they send them out and you're, they're going to give you a check for that. Um, but if they don't sell, you have to pay that money back, you know, and then your books are in the dollar 99 bin, right? You know, so I, yeah, it makes no sense to me to try to seek out a, a, you know, a publisher when I can just do, when I have to do all the work myself, then I might as well just do it all myself and maintain control over everything. My, you know, right. cover, the editing, everything like that, you know? Yeah. The mainstream publishers are, um, the limited experiences I've had with them is, uh, uh, emus like they, the guy was like I, I think I had an agent who was interested at one point and he was like well you got to write it all from one character's perspective because that's what sells so that defeated the point of story cause it's the story of the band and all right, of them right. so that, that was a that was a no go um, you know from the get go for me mm -hmm. I in doing yeah. that. now if I had needed money or was hard up and that was my only means of raising revenue you know maybe I would have thought about it but since I had the, the fortune I was in the fortunate place that I was. I didn't need that. I could do it kind of on my own. And I ended up getting an indie publisher, the Underground Literary Alliance, or a group of zine publishers. And one of them wanted to do a book line. And so Enos ended up being the first book in the line. He was a great publisher to work with. Uh, and But I, I eventually pulled the book back from him because the sales weren't anything more than I could do on my own. And I just preferred to have ownership of my own work. Um, so there has to be some sort of benefit to working with a publisher, um, you know, for, for me uh, to, to be able to work with one. Now, if I thought they could do things that I couldn't, um, you know, that, that'd be great. But yeah, for, uh, like you say, the, a lot of the corporate books kind of vanish into the void. And, you know, you're putting these books out environmentally into the, 
the world and they're getting pulped and you're killing a tree and no one wants to read the book, you know, it's print on demand is, is better from that perspective. Yeah. I don't know why more publishers aren't, aren't doing that. Maybe because of the cost, but if KDP can do it at cost, I mean, it doesn't change. It doesn't matter if you're ordering a thousand books or one book, it's the same price, you right. know? And so if they're able to do it, everyone should be able to do it. You right. know? Um, no, I, 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 I agree with that one. And I, I don't mind the stigma of being a self published author isn't around like it used to be like the whole vanity kind of press. Right. It's not, it's not the same thing. I'm, you're, you know, uh, it's, it's a, it's a variation on that. And I, I like seeing so many people who are self published, you know, um, it is kind of a, it is kind of an awesome, awesome thing. Um, and that's why I want to ask you like what, uh, how did you feel seeing, your book or holding, holding your book that was in print for the first time. How did that feel for you? I was like seeing the, the finished product per se, you know, but coming out of like the zine world, you know, I was already doing a zine of the, you know, the reason I'd done other zines as well, drink, drink, drunk and smash and things. So I always liked that reading the, the final one, the same, so the same thing with the books and the book and uh, being able to read it as a book, uh, print book or some of them, some of them I'll read as ebooks. I'm usually reading an ebook all the time anyway, so I'll, sometimes I'll read the ebook version. If I know I'm going to do the, the print on demand, like I do the, the, um, the Amazon print on demand typically until they say, you're not selling enough books, so please don't, no more books, right, Frank? Um, do something else with this. But they haven't said that yet. Um, you know, so sometimes I'll order a copy just for my bookshelf and I'll read that one just to see how it mm-hmm. looks in, in print um, there. So. Um, it, it's always uh, always fun seeing that, for sure. What's that experience been like when you, if have you waited like, I know when you first get your book you want to read through it, but have you ever sat a book down and not look for it through it for a year or two and then go back and reread that, read that book and usually what I have to do like I have to do the emus to prepare the the, the book edition after I finish the zine so it's been a few years and you know go through and maybe find a typo or two and fix them. But in general, I, I, I'm happy with it. It did what I wanted it to do. And yeah. That's, that's what I was going for. Because that's a bizarre experience. Um, I I had to do that when I started writing the, uh, or before I started writing the, the spring cozy, I had to reread the winter again because I had sat it down for a couple of years. I hadn't touched that world and those characters, and I had to right. remember what it is, what they look like, what they sounded like, you know, this whole world. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was reading it. It was such a bizarre experience because I remembered almost nothing, like not writing almost all of it. Like, I don't remember writing this. I know right. I did because I was there, but I just don't recall. And I thought, well, some of it was actually like, well, that's, that's actually not bad. You know, hey, some guy. This is pretty good. Who's that justice guy? You know, right. Um, that was a surreal experience, kind of, kind of reading it back. You know, because otherwise, I, I mean, I read Gage once just because it, the, that book is close to me. I've not read Death's Head again, um, and Toxic I've read only a couple times just to because I would find like a typo here and there and just you know little things. But um, I think because this, the cozy is the first like uh, series. I'm trying to maintain the, the continuity okay. of place and character, but also expand that. You know, all four books, there's an expansion of about 75, 50 or so characters I'm adding over the three books. Um, so I want to make sure that the whole the whole town is fleshed out and developed, right. you know. Yeah. yeah, you have to be careful with that because, you know, somebody just reads a book recently and they're asking you about something minor 
you know, I don't really remember. I wrote it. But for them, it's like they just experienced it yesterday. They entered that world in, in the novel. Yeah. To me, it's been five, ten years. Uh, okay. Right. I don't remember all the characters at this point or every little thing they do. Um, right. So I'll have to go check check for you uh, to find out. And then it's usually pretty easy to refamiliarize myself with everything. Mm-hmm. But that would be tougher with when you're doing a, a series because you really would have to make sure – like doing comic books, you know, you want to make sure you're writing Spider-Man, you're not contradicting writing a different character called Spider-Man. You know, you want to make sure it's true to that, that continuous story. Right. And the, the world has to be somewhat consistent, even yeah. though evolving. So what, what I, I don't think I'd want to write a Spider-Man comic as much as it's a fun character. There's, I wouldn't want to read all those. I mean, I know there's yeah. writers who get those assignments like that. I think the guy who got Spider-Man, Nick Spencer, one of the recent Spider-Man, I think he went back and read all the Spider-Man comics, which is, God, goodness knows how long that took him. There must be thousands of them um, right. at this point. Uh, but, you know, they have to contradict one another a lot of times and yeah. they go back and forth. So, But um, he was doing it to get the true essence of the character. But for me, that would be too much work. I wouldn't want to be, I'd rather just create something new. Um, yeah. It's impressive he did it, though. But yeah, that, you you got to have it in that world. Otherwise, to a reader, it's going to be pretty jarring mm-hmm. if, if you're, these characters aren't acting the way they're supposed to be. You're just contradicting things. Yeah, you have to be careful. Um, mm-hmm. Right. I think well, as a comic book writer, though, I think that's always a dream as a kid. What attracts you to a comic book character is like you're think one day I want to write Spider-Man or I want to write Batman or whatever it is that you want to write, you know, right. for you. I know you, you're a big fan of The Flash. So I think that's probably something that you'd want to take the helm of. So, because if you love this character and know the character, well, you, there's gotta be something you want to bring to it. Like, well, Spider-Man has done all these things, but not this or X, Y, or Z. And I want to take him down this path or try to try to see what we can do because you know, the comic book industry is kind of fluctuated so much with, with experimental stuff and very conservative and, and repetition, both Marvel and DC have done this ad nauseum, you know, to try to get readership up, I think, if anything, the Marvel's movies have done more to affect their readership, but now they're making their comic books line up with the movies, which I think is a wrong wrong thing to do. And and DC, their movies have not been good, but their animated stuff is wonderful. Right. But, you know, but either way, so, I mean... They do, they do pretty well on, too, the Arrowverse TV shows. I don't watch a lot of them. I watch the Flash one, because mm-hmm. I like the Flash, but... Yeah. Yeah, that, that's... I think the only way I would want to write one is just to read a good one, and hopefully I'd be able to do it, because... The Flash, a lot of times they just rehash the same stories or they do it really badly. Like they had to give him, Jeff Johns had to give him a tragic story. Instead, he was just a happy-go-lucky guy who got superpowers. But no, that's, you know, this day and age, we got trauma. So, you know, you got to have Professor Zoom kill his, kill his mom and frame his dad. Spoiler alert. I, I, didn't, grow up, I didn't grow up with that. No, that's just the premise. That's the background right. premise. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Right. I grew up yeah. reading it's just, Silver Age and Bronze Age stuff. The Silver Age was a lot more light and fanciful. Mm-hmm. Bronze Age was trying to, you know, in the seventies, click down there, trying to be more serious, you know, and 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 find a Superman that wasn't like flipping pancakes for Jimmy Olsen at the church benefit, or no yeah. more time machine for Batman, you know, right. <laughs> or go, you know, which which are ridiculous stories, you know, but there there's something kind they're of fun. fun to them, but they're fun, they're silly, and and I, you know, I, I like the era that when I started reading comic books, the early seventies. And now that I'm revisiting those comic books as an adult, it's kind of awesome to like, oh, yeah, I, I, I kind of love this stuff, you know, that 
early late seventies, early eighties, that decade was when I was really reading comic books the most. And until I got to Eric's shop and kind of got back into comic books, you know, and that, you know, but, um, no, that's, that's well, that maddened me. That's why I wrote the latest novel, The Fast Guy Slows Down. I was just tired of just bad flash stories. Because what they would do is they just would not let the guy, for corporate reasons, they make money. No one wants to read about an elderly superhero. I mean, I love Jake Eric and Golden Age Flash. They've kind of pushed him a little bit in that direction. But there's a great Grant Morrison and Mark Miller mm-hmm. story. I think it's Flash 134, where it's a day in the life of the Flash. That's one of the best Flash stories ever. It's all about mm-hmm. Jake Eric, a day in his life when he's older. But they never finish the stories. Um, so Fast Guy Slows Down just looks like, what if they aged in real time? Uh, and then it becomes a very strange, you know, like I said, the characters evolve on their own. And the guy goes around, um, you know, he's, he doesn't really, he's not really fast. He just can stop time. And so every, so he, it seems like he's fast, but just stop uh-huh. time. And he gets so mad at world leaders because it's set from like 1940 when the Flash debuts to 2020, the early days of when they had the lockdown, the virus panic and all that. It's set during that, and that's the current time period. And he gets mad at the world leaders, so he goes around pooping on them when he time stopped. Um, and it just it just developed a strange life of its own. But you know, and the other thing is, is he really a superhero? Is he like a Walter Mitty guy with an overactive imagination, one and instead of an adolescent with a power fantasy, which is typical of most superhero comics, and starts as an adolescent but goes all the way up to really a child all the way up to an elderly senior citizen. Instead of just ranting about politics, he thinks he can go, if he's mad at Trump, he goes poops on Trump, you know. Uh, if he's mad at uh, Biden, he goes poop. Oh, Biden's not president at the time of the novel, you know, whoever's the right. world leader making him mad. Um, and so I wanted to finish the story where the guy's going to die, you know. It's, it's the end of the superhero, so it's kind of like a Beowulf. They did that a little bit of Dark Knight Returns. Like right. Yeah, the kind of symbolic death. Yeah, so they'll do yeah. that in imaginary stories, but they keep these guys that, that trying to keep them at 29 or whatever all the time, it just kind of restricts the storytelling. You know? sure. And then when they do move it along, like I guess Superman has a son now and he's bisexual. And, right, uh, yeah, Wolverine. Wolverine <laughs> aged, apparently. Uh, you know, he died or something. I, I'm not current. And they bring him back, you know. So. Yeah, he'll probably come back, you know. I just wanted to do one just that was appealing to me with – Let's see what would actually happen. And of course, it's a comedy, so you know, it's really bad. yeah, um, or very uh, um, shitty humor, I guess, with the pooping. But yeah, uh, you know, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you know, people have been laughing at that forever. You know? Yeah, but I don't know if I'd want to write. I mean, it'd be interesting, but they're so hard to do. Like Dan Slott's doing a really good job of Fantastic Four now, and he did a previously good job of Spider-Man. And Grant Morrison can always take these older characters and really find the remaining sparks like with all-star superman and things but right that, that's really rare a lot of it is just has to be tough and i've had some indie guys people who stayed at my house when they were doing a perpetual motion roadshow go on to write for dc or marvel um, i think charlie jane andrews is right for marvel now and rika tamiki is writing she wrote for marvel before and then she wrote for dc so they do there are people that kind of evolved out of the zine world to to write comics but um and even before that, a lot of the fanzine writers from the 1960s, but those are the guys, and they, the older guys who wrote the comics we love, like Gardner Fox and John Broom, when they wanted health insurance, uh, DC and them just fired them. Because uh, Stan Lee basically wrote most of the Marvels at that point. So right. And so they needed to replace them, so they replaced them with all the fans, like Roy Thomas, who were doing fanzines. Uh, and that's that's what kind of created the Bronze Age, was really all those guys like Kerry Bates and Roy Thomas and... Jerry Conway coming in and, and taking, you know, 
taken over the old old slots because the old timers like John Broom and whatnot, even Stanley himself, they wanted to be novelists. This was just something they were doing in the meantime, uh, and they never quite. Some of them wrote their great American novels. Some never did. Right. Uh, so that was a big generational shift. Uh, their tradition of having fanzines come out right for the comics, but I think doing the comics, you would probably one, you'd make a lot more money doing the image, doing a creator own thing, or doing Dave Sim, Cerebus, self-publishing gospel, you know, do your own self-publishing, but there's so many things on the market, it's hard to make it, so a lot of these guys will write for DC and Marvel, make a name, and then branch off to either self-publish stuff with the image, sure. or, or Dark Horse, or somebody who lets it have their creator rights. Yeah, there's a lot of white noise, I mean, anything coming out there, there's so much entertainment, so much to read, you can't keep on top of it. And, you know, and there's a glut of indie publishers and publishing a lot of really good stuff. So, yeah. you know, with, you know, like titles like, or, you know, like Milestone when that came out and Dark Horse and, and all these other ones that are still going strong, whether it's writer-owned properties like McFarlane's imprint. Yeah. Um, it was an Image. Is that his? Yeah, Image. Yeah, that was a, that was a big one. You know, and it's giving a lot more freedom and creativity for the for these writers. And now, because just like the KDP with the print on demand, you know, comic books can be printed on demand as well. And I've got friends who've written comic books, and they're not too much different price wise than what you're going to buy, you know, from a Marvel DC book. You know, right. comic books are like what four and five dollars a piece now. They're pricing themselves out of the market. It, it's just ridiculous. I'm not going to pay four dollars for a 32 page book, you know, and I'm just not. You know, and you unless, it's, unless it's a friend of mine, crazy. you know, I'll support them. But the Marvel and DC, you look and there's like ten editors. You don't need ten editors, man. You need an editor. You don't need right. ten editors. So the, the, the corporate guys are just like clearly there's some administrative bloat there, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons they're so expensive. The other reason is they don't do advertising anymore. Yeah, so I miss those ads for CDs. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean that. I miss those ads. Those are great ads, you know, yeah, sea monkeys, time. x-ray specs, you know, things like that. I used to love that stuff as a kid. Um, that kind of, yeah, I definitely phased out, you know, and sometimes you get really nice splash pages and more art, but it's still not worth the price. You know, no kid me, can, so. really very few kids can afford that. They don't even know yeah. what a comic book in the first place. It's probably, they probably do the online stuff. You know, you pay $6 a month or something and you get your online yeah. subscription to DC or Marvel, you know. Web comics, e-comics, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, lots of good stuff there. Um, all right, I'm going to kind of bring this back to you, Fred, or okay. Red. Um, if you have to think about like your goals or ambitions as a writer, you know, what is your writer fantasy? Like, what is your ultimate goal as a writer? Um, pretty much what I'm doing now, I don't know how sustainable it is to just be able to, to write. Um, so it needs some sort of income stream. Like right now, I'm having to walk my kid to kindergarten twice a day. And so I had a sales job and it just kept interfering with the meetings and whatnot. So it's like, okay, like, let's, let's just call it a day. There are other reasons too. The company just wasn't doing very smart stuff. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, but it'd be, I think I thought it'd be hard to find a gig that'll let me like walk the kid at noon or whatever, and then go pick him up at three. You know, that's just, it's going to be hard to find out. So I was like, well, it's just a few months. I'll just kind of hang. So I've been doing kind of writing full time and doing music too. Uh, so that's one reason the latest novel moved more quickly from how it was moving. So I would like to keep going with that. The problem is, you know, you would need to get uh, the money come in. Most writers, as you mentioned, there are some blockbuster writers like Stephen King. There are the genre people who maybe we don't know them, but within the romance genre, the horror genre, the uh, Western genre, 
they may be able to make a living, but the vast majority of people have day jobs. Now, a lot of them, right. especially with literature of Capital L, they work in the academy. They're working, they're doing creative writing, which is kind of like a pyramid scheme at this point because there's only so many jobs to go around, there's so much demand, so a lot of them are subsidized. Like Mark Weingarten, who's a great writer, loved his Crooked River Burning, where he, he mixed in these characters with um, uh, things from Cleveland's history, supposedly working on what sounds like a fun book from the 1970s, the punk rock in Cleveland and the pornography industry in Cleveland. It's a sequel to Crooked River Burning. I don't know if I think he's never come out with that book, but he, he teaches at like Florida. I think I emailed him a couple of years ago, like, hey man, I'm waiting on your book. Not to nag him or be you know, mean or anything, but just like let him know there are people looking for the book. So a lot of those guys who make their living teaching, that takes away from their writing just as much as being a plumber would take away from your writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them make their living that way. So the challenge will be to like make a living, have some sort of means coming in, and then it may slow down if I have to go back to like a sales job or something. Like, yeah. Okay, I can only write a certain amount uh, during the day because you know family and other responsibilities are going to come first. But you, you got to make a priority for the writing to keep it going. So that that would be my dream to kind of keep it going. You know, there's nothing like getting up in the morning and just being able to write. You know. Uh, and have that that luxury to just focus and just kind of live in your head and laugh. That's usually how I know it's going well if I'm making myself laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope it's, it would make others laugh as well. If not, at least I'm having a good time, I guess. So, yeah. um, so that that would be sort of the ideal. Not, I won't don't think I would want to write. I guess if I need the money, maybe I would write something that you know to the audience or whatever. But. The, the nice thing about being able to write whatever you want is you can write whatever you want, but the downside is, you know, sales are going to be terrible, usually. And that's, yeah. That's what it's with mine. Sales are terrible. Yeah. Uh, some genres sell much. well. Yes. Yeah. yeah, some do sell well. Yeah. Um, well, of the four books, which one is your most successful sales-wise? Um, it's hard to say. They all are kind of equal. I like call myself uh, America's worst-selling author who hasn't given up yet. Because usually someone writes a book, sells terribly and they give up like okay i guess i won't be the next stephen king um i just keep going because coming out of the zine background i guess it doesn't matter i enjoy yeah. doing it so if you want to read it too great I'll, I'll do the work to to publish this uh you know but the emus you know probably it was like a hundred copies for that's good around yeah and then i think we did i don't know how big the print run was for the book probably was like 500 to a thousand for that that are out there um, and sometimes books will have multiple readers as someone sells the book or lends it to a friend or whatever. Sure. So Emus is probably the one that's, that's sold the most. Blog Love Omega Glee I published as an ebook because it's so long. I never did a real print version. There was an excerpt in a, a wrestling anthology. Um, that yeah, you'd, I, have to, you'd have to charge like 30 bucks for that book just to make a penny. Mm-hmm. You know? So that one, and I did it as a pay-as-you-want kind of free range. So I don't know how many are out there floating around because it's, People could read it, and obviously they don't send any money my way or whatever. Every once in a while, I get like a donation, but I, I don't know whether it came from Blog Love or Mega Glee or something else. And then um, frequently asked questions. I mean, Amazon sales rankings are terrible on this. I don't even think they list them on some of them because they're so bad. They've all sold at some point, but yeah, know, it's they're all listed there. I I checked today; they're all still on up there. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I'm amazed Amazon hasn't told me to quit yet. So that, that yeah. one probably has lower, I would say, than blog love or pornographic. Edna's, the, I think, probably did the worst of all of them, which, you know, should tell me something. <laughs> quit. <laughs> but I, it's, it's, my, it's, a, it's probably my favorite, and I think that's just like anybody's, like uh, any parent, you know, the latest child's always your favorite for whatever reason because they're young. 
Yeah. Not, not that you don't love the others, but they're the, they're the most recent one, and you don't tell the others that. Right. But that is just the most fun, I think. But yeah, I'm sure it sold the worst. Um, I don't know that um, – I think it sold some print copies, and I know it sold internationally, but I don't know if the ebook in America has even sold a copy. I mean, I sold them other ways, too. It's on Google, and I, I sell them directly from my website, redplate.com, mm-hmm. or somebody emails me. But as far as the Amazon one, I don't even know if that's even moved a copy in, inside the United States. Outside, yeah. yes, but not inside. Yeah, so and if people read it, so because people can read it on, a, on KDP, but you get paid shit for it. Um, I'm not on that, because I, I, you had to sign an exclusive thing. At one point, I did that maybe frequently. I didn't like I don't like the exclusive stuff. So okay. I that yeah so how are you selling them on amazon as well as others other sites i i said i refuse to do the exclusive so i'm not oh i see yeah so but yeah maybe i should change that going forward because you know um gauge black didn't sell crazy numbers you know um somewhere in the double digits probably 30 or so that's good but but it has a shit ton of pages read yeah. You know, I'm like thousands and thousands of pages. Where I'm thinking, I, I could have used those sales. You know, and right. then I'm not getting paid shit for for KDP. Right. You know, a tenth of a penny a page or something stupid like that. I'm like, well, give me this, give me my money. Um, right. And and uh, yeah, the the pulps. You know, Death's Head has. I think I maybe sold two or three copies, which I'm surprised because that cover is just so so awesome. That's a great cover. He did yeah. A great yeah. Of guys. Yeah, you know, it's straight pulp kind of action horror. You know, it's fun. Uh, the cozy, not surprising. The cozy is the biggest seller. Yes, and that would be my guess. That or, or toxic would be my guess. Toxic is number two, which yeah. surprises me. Um, but I know when the new cozy comes out, you all see sales on the first one go up as well. That's typically what happens. Yes. But um, yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. And and so and I'm back. getting people who've read it have been so sweet because again, it's not. It's not a book I write normally. It's not my genre, but the the feedback I've gotten from people, other writers I've met on Instagram, you know, they read it and they give me such lovely comments and feedback and and reviews. It, it is so heartwarming to get that and unexpected, you know, like um, you know, if you don't like it, that's cool. Tell me, I'm I'm okay with that. Right. Uh, but so there's something that strikes a chord, and that that puts a little pressure in a, in a way on this next one, but it. I felt going into writing it, I felt a lot more confident of my prose this time around. Like the, because that was my first book, and I had written it before, but never a novel. Right. And I was just like groping in the darkness, like where where am I? I don't know where. I can't even find the shore. I, there's no light. I'm just figuring this out as I go. And and I didn't really have that feeling that much into this book. There was a lot more confidence. Like here's the story. I know I want to write. And um, so that was a really kind of a. If it, it was really encouraging in that early process to feel like, oh, okay, this is. I know what I'm doing a little bit, you know, not, not, right. not to be all cocky, but there was like, okay, this is not my first rodeo. I've got, I've got four books under my belt, all very different. Um, right. But now coming back to this world, I've got a sense of confidence and that I did not have in that first time, you know? That's good. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't, if you um, don't just publish on Amazon and there's Google play is good. You can put, uh, they get a lot. And then uh, the other one I go through, I mean, I do directly to somebody sends mm-hmm. money through PayPal or whatever. I'll send it uh, email, 
uh, you know, or print, like if I have a print copy, like the emus, I still have some print copies, not very many, but I have a few left. And then uh, you can, there's another website. Um, oh, geez, I'm going to forget the name of it. Uh, but they distribute it to all, Smashbooks. They distribute it to all the uh, other things. So Apple Store and, and Kobo and uh, all these other, uh, Barnes & Noble. So you can find it on, on there. So they do a nice job. I can't say I get a heck of a lot of sales from that. It's necessarily worth doing, but it gives you availability at least and the possibility of those sales. Yeah. Well, that that's really, you know, that's important, you know, to get it out there and to at least let people know. And that's kind of one reason why I'm doing this podcast. You know, for me, it's a, it's a good way to talk to get to know people. I mean, I've known you for a long time, but to get to know new writers <clears throat> and to give them a place to showcase their work and, and so let other people know what kind of writer they are and what to expect and, and uh, you know, it's and just to showcase their stuff. You know, everyone, it's a nice place to say, here's what I've done. And who doesn't want that, you know? cross-pollinate, try to encourage and uplift and, and share. I mean, that's, as indie writers, I think that's a, a good thing that we can do for one another is to promote one another without feeling a competition. You know, right. it's it's um, like we're both comedy writers. My movies are comedies anyway, right. but it's like I don't feel a sense of competition with like any other writer. It's like I'm just doing right. me. You right. know, I'm doing the best I can for what I want to say. I like what I'm writing, and the fact that other people like it is still amazing to me. Like, oh, that's awesome. I I have no expectations going in to a book that whether people will like it or not, as long as I like it, but I hope they will. I mean, obviously, you want people to read it, sure. but but it's never never something that I kind of worry about in that regards. You know, it, but it has to pass my test first. You know, yes. I gotta I gotta know that it's good before I put it out there and just right. hope that something in there resonates with other readers. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, you've got a, you've got a new work. You said a work in progress right now. Right. It's just it's about right. done. I got, I'm in the proofing stage. So I'm okay. The, the EPUB. Okay. The last guy slows down. And then, uh, when do you expect that to be out sometime this summer, spring? Uh, probably earlier than later. It could be out as soon as this month. Oh, Nice. Proofing goes. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, send you over a copy so you can check Please. it out. I have a quote from you about Edna's in it. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed Edna's. Um, it, Edna's was different from you. Like, every book has been so different. There's still your voice, which I'm, I'm, I'm good at. It, you know, it's very straightforward, like voice. Like, once, you, once you've read something of yours, and I've, you know, we've been songwriters together for a long time. So I know your, your way of writing. And there's still that core of Red Fright through all of your works, but every work is so uniquely different. It's like a different experience. And sure. so I'm, I'm intrigued by this new one. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to those stories. It's the, how do you tell them? You know, that's the big, there's the story and then there's the telling and yeah. telling, you know, you can get too obsessed with form, uh, but figuring out like what's the right method to tell this story um, is always the biggest problem to, to challenge to solve. Once that's solved, everything typically falls into place. Right, right. So um, tell us one more time the name of your new book coming out. It's uh, Fast Guy Slows Down. So it starts out in 2020. Early, it's an old superhero, or at least he thinks he's a superhero. And he's kind of living alone. He's a, a widower. Uh, his cat um, is about to die. He doesn't know that at the very beginning. 
Uh, so he's pretty isolated and alone, and he's having a problem with groundhogs uh, digging holes in his yard. Uh, that he's like old old men. He's obsessed with something that's kind of yeah. He's obsessed with that. Okay. Uh, and then it has these flashbacks to the different decades. Um, so yeah. like the 1940s, there'll be a whole chapter. 1950s, 19, so on up to the to the 20 teens, um, so the latest teens. Uh, and then the rest of it is just this. Um, his granddaughter comes and stays with him uh, during the the lockdown, the early lockdown. So it goes back and forth uh, between kind of present and past. He gets lost in his memories, like a lot of old people do, um, and looks at just what it would be like to be an elderly superhero uh, living uh, in this time. And so nice, uh, fast guy slows down. So I, see, we'll see what what people think. Um, yeah, know. is he a superhero? Do superheroes really poop on world leaders? I don't. I don't know. Well, what is Superman movie where he's, he's done that? Well, when you mentioned the obsession with the groundhog, I just thought, okay, there's, there's the Fred I know, you know, like that. I could just, you know, like, yep, that's all it took. I'm like, I'm in, I'm sold. Superheroes, groundhogs, I'm, you had, you had me there. You yeah, had me a groundhog. I hope it's fine. I like to, you know, try to make it funnier, but you know, you don't want to just do a gag, just to, you know, leave right. But it's always tempting to do that. So, yeah. so Weird. hopefully. Proofing, it may, may be funny. Um, you know, I'd like to make it funnier uh, if possible. That's always good. Your humor straddles this kind of line between dry and absurd, you know, yes. at times. There's this absurdity to kind of everything in a way yes. that's kind of like a shotgun blast. It's just we're just going to go everywhere. Right. You know, and, and it's the unexpected turns and like just like shocks that happen um, in your stories, which kind of complement the absurdity, I think, especially like when frequently asked questions. There's just this kind of absurdity to it all that is mesmerizing, you know. Right. And so now I'm, I'm really intrigued. I I'm, I'm, I'm look forward to reading this this book because um, I know that absurdity is already there. Um and and but then you have the potential for these flashbacks to be funny but also heartfelt, which is like what I felt in Edna's employment agency. The 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 brief kind of side stories for these characters sometimes right. were really sad. Yeah. You know? And and it's it's lends a lends to this sense of gravitas right. to use the fancy word. Um, you know, to the to the whole story. You know, in the yeah. midst of this lunatic place to work and these crazy characters and these horrible situations you have these secret lives of these people kind of in the background and so that it made it a much more interesting and complex layered layered book than what you expect from a comedy you know a a comedy book so um yeah I, i i like that i like that about your writing i really enjoy your writing style it's just one of those Ones where I, I'm going to be taken down some path. I may not like that path, or I may not like everything that happens. Like, right. meaning as a fan, like if you put me into a world, I'm already projecting like what I want to see. Right. You know, like I want to go here. I want to do this, and it may not take you there, but you're still just going to be pulled along for this ride. And I think right. that's, I think best how to describe your works is you know it's like a, it's a surreal roller coaster ride that straddles the Kafka esque absurdity. Yes, but but it's also kind of grounded in a in a baseline of humor that's pervasive everywhere. You know, 
Yeah, I think that's the existentialism, just the sense that everything is kind of absurd ultimately. Uh, mm -hmm. Colors all the works. With Edna's, I mean, I worked in an employment agency that was the, the funniest place to work. Not not the funnest, the funniest. Right, funniest. Stories right. just walked in. It's like a bar in that way. Stories just walk in the door. But when people are coming to an employment agency, they're often down in their luck. So there's a lot of yes. sad too. Some of them are living in their car. Um, some of them have drug problems. Some of them, you know, just, you know just about to be homeless. Uh, again, I guess living in their car. They maybe don't even have a car in this case. So mm -hmm. you get a lot of just uh, sad situations there. So I wanted to flesh out, because most of it's focused on the staff and their hijinks, but the clientele as well were also very interesting. It, it straddles that dark humor, like so seen in like Catch-22 or mm -hmm. the, the original M.A.S.H., Yes. You know, it was it was very dark in that in that sense because you're making trying to have fun in the middle of a war, you know, right. and you're not making fun of people in these situations, but the whole, you're just looking at there's a sense of like I said the existentialist aspect of it, which brings me back to the song you wrote for the pigs, yeah. um, "Life is the Funniest Joke." Yeah. yeah, you know, and that that kind of seems to be this theme throughout. Sure you're continuing to be your theme throughout all your work. So there's a consistency there. Yeah. I think the satire and sarcasm is always, there's sort of a, always a, a moral kind of just you're horrified underneath. And the only way to keep going is to kind of just, you have to laugh to, to, to keep going. Yes. They all kind of have their, um, I mean, the rock band one is more, the emos is more, you know, it's not anything bad serious or shattered, just kind of young people find their way. But I mean, it was also, there was absurd things or like at that point they wouldn't let gay people marry and you know, gay character uh, mm -hmm. move in. And, you know, there were a lot of like people, there were people getting excited to go to war, which is ridiculous. You're going out to kill people. Um, so there were the, those kind of issues there where blog level made Glee. It was just like a civilization decaying, but also these people are uh, living like, like we lived like kings from a hundred years ago. I mean, running water, you know, food, these technology devices, but you'd never know it because people are always horrified and think the world's going to end. And, you know, Oh my God, people are depressed and they're on drugs to make sure they're not depressed, but we're living in like the greatest time to be a human being ever. Arguably. Right. There are some problems, environmental issues. You can't just necessarily go down to the river and, drink some water like you could maybe a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, but overall it's a pretty good time to be human historically. Um, so yes. this is looking at that and then um, frequently asked questions about uh, being dead in this genetic, the metaphysical issues of you know, what's the point of life? What is this existence about? Um, you know, I wanted to straddle the line between, uh, you know, scaring people that there is an afterlife. So they'll behave better. It has that typical apocalyptic myth style but also making fun of the whole notion that anybody knows what it is. Um, as right. Well. That's, and that's one thing I think I was ultimately surprised about. It's that I was waiting for the answer, you know, and, and you straddle that pretty, pretty well without like giving it away. You know, you, you, it, it, it was that sense of, we don't know, this might be it. <laughs> and this right. might be all there is, which is, you know, at the end is kind of like this comical in itself. This, this right. sense of like, who the hell knows, you know, but uh, like Neil Peart says, why are we here? Because we're here. Roll the bones. 
you know, right. we just, we just got to go and, and just try to have fun in, in the midst yeah. of the absurdity of, of life itself. You know, it's, there's a lot of fun to be had underneath all the, the awfulness. And that's, that's what right. Edna's looking at is living. They're a horrible, to make a living, you have to do horrible things sometimes to make, they make work far more miserable than it needs to be. But yeah. there can also be a lot of fun. And that's what I was getting into with Edna's. With Fast Guy, the new thing is more nuclear holocaust, but we're always 15 minutes away. And you have these leaders who, frankly, aren't very competent. Um, so it's a wonder we haven't blown ourselves up. In the book, the guy claims he saved us from uh, nuclear annihilation numerous times. Um, you know, and there are some truth to that. There were a few times over our history where it was like a Russian sub-commander, like not following orders. And that's a lot how the world didn't end. He's like, I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure I'm going to do that. And, yeah. you know, just how awful that would be and how lucky can we continue to keep um, pushing our luck with this? Because it seems like the leaders get worse and worse. You know, we aren't putting out JFKs anymore. Even JFK wasn't that great, but they aren't even that caliber anymore. You know, it's like, we're, we're, what, what's going to happen? Are we going to be able to survive or are we going to end up living in gamma world? So uh, that's, that's sort of that background that people kind of have forgotten about that. But there are those those issues as well. We could could be a great world. It could be a horrible world. Why make it a horrible one? Yeah. Well, at, at least we can laugh in it. I mean, sometimes, yeah. like you said, that's that's the only thing we can do, and uh, you know, just just kind of go about our lives as best we can. Sure. You know? So, well, Fred, uh, on world leaders. Yeah. So, where people, where can people find you? You had mentioned your website once before. I want to make sure everyone knows. If you want to find Red Fright, you can find his books on Amazon. You can also go to redfright.com, which yeah. is which is Red's blog and you can have links to all of his books you can buy them from him and he'll even sign you a copy too yeah i'm happy to, i mean i don't have the emus that i can sign but if somebody wants to send one of the print on demand ones you know and put a self-addressed stamped envelope or something yeah we'd be happy to do that or in person or whatever yeah, fantastic be, yeah the website's the main one so um you know and then uh for the music stuff I, i'm soundcloud is where most of the music's up so i put out a demo album recently and then Severe platter damage has some re-recordings of older songs, including a couple yeah. of pig songs. Yeah, you can yeah. find some great pigs videos on uh, YouTube. YouTube, so, yeah, yeah, the Escape Fetal Pigs, right? Back in the right. day. Yes. Um, just on that note, I have uh, through heavy metal horror. I forget who it was we were talking to. It, I forget who it was. It was a big rock star. We had mentioned the the band and some of the songs, and he was laughing. And he's like, "You got to get that band back together. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you guys got to get a reunion." I'm like, "Oh, you know, uh, yeah, that would be funny." But I've had a few other people on Facebook, people we know right. in our larger circles, keep on asking, "Like, you got you and Fred going to do a reunion?" I'm like, "No, I don't think so." <laughs> but hey, uh, I just thought he's that, climbing up from Florida and Jim <laughs> from wherever he is. Yeah, yeah. Where he moved hey. recently. Hey, if the Eagles could do it, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, which they're coming back around again. Uh, yeah, I thought, no, nah, that's that's funny. That's funny. But anyway, I, I thought you would like to. Again. There you go. <laughs> yeah, right. That which I think is still there, amazingly enough. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's ever going to go. There's never going to be, you know, they're always going to have years in, of trolls. As the old ones die out, the new ones have already been there. Yeah. You know, it's people who just never leave Bowling Green and just, like, are fixtures, you know? They're just. Yes. They're just never going to leave. You know, the, the trolls, the faces will change, but their status as trolls will never. 
Yeah. Oh, no hey, uh, Red. I've had a really good time today. Yes, thank you. Yeah, this has been a blast. And um, you know, you've you've been watching and listening to Between the Lines. You can watch us if you're watching us on our YouTube page, Between the Lines Podcast. If you're a writer and would like to join me for a chat, email me at Between the Lines fifty four at yahoo.com between the lines five four at yahoo.com so here's here's my cheesy outro see you next time between the lines oh i love it yeah. <laughs> it's classic right yeah. <laughs> excellent hey thanks again man this was no fun. problem thank you it was a blast yeah.